0: Our heart sponsor for today is the 501c3 nonprofit National Treasures Artists in Residence. We are supporting them by offering an audience requested masterclass on business plan writing. Over 30 days you will receive daily emails with microtasks broken down over the month that will give you a complete plan. This will help you assemble your ideas, communicate your concept to others, and raise capital. Participants will be eligible for prizes that will help you polish your plan to optimize success. Visit AchievePodcast.com forward slash plans with an S to register. Our mind sponsor for today is Modern Career. The Modern Career podcast, coaching, and workshops enable you to navigate your career in an ever-changing world and help you live your full potential. Mary Humiston, a former chief human resource officer of Rolls-Royce, shares insider tips, including insights from leaders and executives from all over the world. Leverage their expertise. They can help you build resilience, overcome obstacles, and feel more fulfilled every day. Visit modern-career.com right now to schedule a session with one of their experienced coaches, and if you use code ACHIEVE20, you'll get 20% off. On this episode, we have Sharon DiMattia. Sharon was born and raised in Southern California. A frequenter of the outdoors and avid participant in athletic activities during her youth, Sharon developed a passion for skiing. Upon finishing high school, she moved to Mammoth for a decade to ski and teach children skiing. Sharon then earned bachelor's and master's degrees in the life sciences while conducting lab research and starting a family. She resided in Reno, Nevada and then made her way back to California. In the process, she began engaging more and more in the artistic pursuits that have been her lifelong passion. She has done large-scale sculptural installations at Burning Man and a global project aiding people in expressing their identity through art that has included over 6,000 participants called Human Interface. Sharon, thank you so much for being on our show.
1: Thanks, Asim. It's really awesome to be here. I appreciate you having me.
2: It's absolutely my pleasure. And uh, I think we've set a record for the podcast in terms of Time between initial conversation and being a guest. Uh, this is the shortest I, I think I've ever had. <laughs> I might even have to track it in hours. Uh, it's barely 96 hours. Um, usually there's uh, you know people I've known for years or, or friends or we have a conversation, I ruminate on it, then I decide to invite them on. But from our initial conversation, it was very clear um, your life experiences and the manner in which you pursue your passions, um, were so inspiring for me. And I know it's going to be amazingly inspiring for our audience. So it's a really a great pleasure. And thank you for your willingness to share your story with us.
1: Well, thank you. Um, it is truly my honor to be here. So thanks.
2: Absolutely. I love to start at the very beginning, and mm-hmm. you're um, talking to us at the moment from Los Angeles, which is where sure. your story began, or Santa Monica proper, uh, I should say, yeah. um, St. John's Hospital. Um, yeah. And so, tell us about that. Um, you know, uh, your family was based in L.A., and uh, how many years did you spend here after you were born? And I know you're a middle child of five siblings, yeah. so. Yeah. Share that
1: with so, us. Um, Sure, so I was born down here in Southern California. Um, I actually grew up in Thousand Oaks though. So I was born okay. in Santa Monica and moved directly into Ventura County. Gotcha. Um, but I do have four siblings, all sisters. So I'm the middle wow. of five girls. And then my mother, so my dad was surrounded by six women.
2: <laughs> a lot of estrogen. <laughs>
3: I know, a lot of hair, a lot of
1: hair. <laughs> and,
2: well, um, and, and what was the age spacing between you and your siblings?
1: Um uh, my mom had four of us within five years. So oh. um I never really appreciated how full her hands were until I had my own children. But um and then there was an eight year gap between my younger sister and my very youngest sister.
2: Okay. So gotcha.
1: I think they were still trying for a boy.
2: Right. right yeah
1: right. Hope so, springs eternal. <laughs> yeah and here you go there's another girl um, but uh but so yeah go ahead
2: for i mean i'm just thinking uh, for a fair amount of your upbringing you were the third of, of four daughters mm. until about eight or nine which is like fourth grade and right. so you know that really was your experience what, what what was that like what were the things that you were interested in what were you where did you find your joy
1: oh it's such an interesting question because um all my sisters were all really different. I mean, there's some through lines for sure, but, um, I was always a bit more of a spaz, I guess. Um, and I I got excited about, like, I still do. And, um, and I was very close to my father. We, my family was very conservative. My father was, uh, born and raised one of nine children in Michigan. And, um, and my mom was actually born and raised in the Philippines during the Second World War. So uh Wow. Okay. Yeah. So her father was in a concentration camp and passed away there. So my mother uh oh came to goodness. the US at fifteen. And uh yeah. She spent the first her,
2: 15 years of her life in in the, the Philippines, the Philippines. In,
1: in Baguio City growing up. Wow. You know, the Japanese had taken her home. Of um, you know bomb shelters regularly um yeah really interesting diverse background uh and she and my dad met at a party so uh and my mom is very intuitive and was a dancer that never got to dance really
2: Mm, um that was her passion but she couldn't apply it yeah
1: right because of just the environment that she is and and it's only it's like steve jobs says it's hard to connect the dots going forward. And it's only now that looking back that I can see how important um, this upbringing was. My dad is a physicist, um, retired, but worked at a, you know, they used to lock him in a vault and he got awards for innovative thinking and math. So, you know, he was very much, he used to just wander in fields thinking about Physical wow. theories to the point he never did homework, but yet graduated second in his class from college. And, um, <laughs> you know, uh, so I had—I was very much raised in a logical, predictive, um, measured uh, system. Although my dad had a real love for nature in the mountains, so
3: okay. you know, just, well, that
2: was his meditation of sorts that helped him think. You know, right? Yeah. Uh, I'm willing. I'm, I'm going to hazard a guess that you also have developed, uh, you, that, that you've inherited that. You have a love for nature.
1: Was, uh, and more so now than when I was a kid. Um, you know, when I was, my dad, when, when my sisters and I, when we reached six, we always had these milestones. At six years old, you went on a practice hike at Point Magoo State okay. Park in the Santa Monica mm-hmm. Mountains. And if you didn't right. whine, you got to go backpacking in the high Sierras. Mm-hmm. And we backpacked on Memorial Day, uh, July 4th and Labor Day. And I really wanted to do that. So at one point in time, my dad had um, all the gear for four little girls, age wow. six to 10, all the food. And it wasn't freeze dried. My mom would cook full meals and and seal a meal it up. And, um, and I think I was the biggest whiner actually, <laughs> like, my Dad had to constantly tell me stories to just keep me moving. And oh, well. um, and I didn't like being cold, and I was always cold, but I nonetheless loved it. You know, we had big fires and we went with other families, and they are some of my favorite childhood memories. Um, but my dad That's was also very saying. inventive. He used to sew our outdoor clothing, you know, so that we could well, go in the snow. Yeah. Um,
2: True, a Renaissance man. He would uh, kind of take it right, all. Right. So he he had this
1: uh, he had this mix and uh, yeah. but um, yeah. So I loved to play. I was very into sports growing up. I used yeah
2: very physical. Um, so yeah, outdoorsy sports. What was your favorite sport to play growing up?
1: Um, I played softball, fast pitch softball. So I was a pitcher, mm. and wow. um. I also played club soccer. So, and then okay. at 16 started skiing and um, at 18 somehow convinced my parents to allow me to move to Mammoth um, where I worked in the ski industry for 10 years. I thought I was just gonna stay for one year, but
2: um, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that has been a theme uh, in your life to your passion for skiing has, uh, yeah. it's not yeah. abated at all. Um, well, that's so great. now. It, I just have to ask in terms of negotiation technique, was it the whining approach or was it the assertive (laughs) approach to say mom and dad, I'm moving to Mammoth deal with it.
1: Um, You know, it's really interesting. My mom was so upset because, you know, I had been accepted into university and honors classes and all that, because I was, I was a box checking little girl. You know, Mm. I remember sister Roseanne's first grade class and Robbie Hutton used to sit next to me and we would battle to see who could read the fastest. She would time us because (laughs) it wasn't even about understanding the content. It was about how fast we could read a sentence. That's how I was measured. How, you know, I was, how well could you color inside the lines? You know, this was again, a very, and I love the school I grew up in, but I was raised in a very conservative environment from, yes. um, But, uh, but.
2: Well, you mentioned sisters. So I mentioned, I imagine it was a Catholic school that you went to. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm.
1: All right. Yep. First through eighth grade. Yeah.
2: Wow. And then high school was at.
1: High school was at a public school. And, um, and yeah, I, I, I did okay there, you know. I was a cheerleader. I've always been very energetic.
2: Wow. Okay. Um, well, and I, 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 love that. And the reason why I'm spending so much time focusing on it because mm-hmm. I know your story, and I know that there's this phenomenal analytical side to you that you do ply, um, and and so I just I love the juxtaposition of those two. It's yeah. uh, it's 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 really phenomenal. So. Um, You basically say turn away from university from college and you're like i'm going to go to mammoth and so you're you're 18 when you do this
1: Mm -hmm. i was 18 and um what was the draw
2: there was there it was just was it purely skiing was there anything else that
1: it was skiing i loved i just felt free you know and i always have you know when i'm moving out in nature, and that's still true, even though for a large section of my life, I think I kind of, well, I didn't forget it because that was always been important. Um, I just felt like I was flying. I loved to go fast and um, yeah, it was just fun. And
2: Any of your other siblings into skiing?
1: They did, but no one like me. Yeah, um, so
2: this was kind of like uniquely yours. This was sharing. Many of the thing. things
1: that was the things that I did were kind of uniquely mine. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> all of all of my, even to this day, you know, yeah, but, uh, you know, as you get older, I think you, each family member will find their own uniqueness. But um, yeah, at one point that we'll talk about, I definitely left the reservation and I'm just, you know, in that way, I was actually yeah. finding my way back. But um, but yeah, so absolutely, there is this piece that was very logical and analytical and um, excelling in all the measures that we, uh, you know, put there in terms of grades yeah. and academia and athleticism. And then there was this other part that just wanted to play, you
3: know? Yeah,
2: no, of course. Well, uh, I... I know how cerebral you are, and I know how much intellectual stimulation matters to me. so there must have been something uh, during that those ten years at mammoth. How did you stimulate yourself intellectually
1: um well i loved I started to become fascinated with just the human body as a machine how could okay. you know and and peak performance
2: how did it work mm, right right
1: and which again, looking backwards, I can see that that's just what I have always done. And that's the creative part of me is that whatever I happen to be involved in, I look at that system and I can somehow, you know, we're all born with a gift, but I tend to be able to take a broad view. And then I just, I'm really curious about it. I want to know how it works. And, um, and in the summers, I would just run for hours Well, I wanted to know how to run further and run faster because I wanted to see more. I rode my bike and um, and and at the time they didn't have all the water hydration systems that they have now. So I actually ran with very little water. So I was
2: oh, kind wow. of like it's been um, dehydrated at the end of it. I mean, I, I just visioned you going for hours,
1: hours with a topo map and a dog. And I just, (laughs) I would just, I was really good directionally, but, but I knew I just wanted to see a lot. And, um, I was very observational and so that continued. I rode bikes. I started doing triathlons. Um, I, I loved going uphill as much as down. You know, it used to be just down with the skiing, but then I was, you know, hiking everything and,
3: yeah. and
1: s- snowshoeing at the end of the day, up the ski runs. And um, yeah, it was just...
2: Would you say you're attracted to challenges then?
1: Very much so, <laughs> yeah. You I Kind of embrace
2: to... that. Yeah, give me a challenge. Always. I will Always. embrace it. Yeah. Wow, that's um, so fascinating.
1: I realized I, I started doing uh, triathlons and they just kept getting longer and longer because I'm always like, okay, I got this, what next? And yeah. um, and I really, when I started doing what we'll get to what I do now, I realize how valuable all that was to me then because the challenges that I have faced in the last 10 years have been so much harder than any Ironman I ever ran you
3: know
1: like the yeah, yeah. um we talk it's all, amazing of, yeah you know how resiliency the,
2: the, and... well i was just going to draw and i think you were going to the same place just draw that distinction between like the physical versus the internal the emotional mental um and how what a stark contrast it is in terms of uh, the toil it takes and energy it takes to to grapple My, with them
1: my dad was a huge tennis fan. So he used to, we used to sit and watch Jimmy Connors and Bjorn course,
2: Borg play. Yeah. <laughs> and he would go,
1: come right. on, Jimmy. And he would pound the floor. He loved Jimmy Connors. Wow. He ran faster. He chased down everything. He didn't necessarily have the same power game okay. as a Boris Becker or a Bjorn Borg, but right. he had tenacity.
0: He had wow. strength
1: of will. He could come back from so far down in the match and just battle his way back. So it was, it was really something that even as we're talking, I'm realizing how that was always such a, um, it was an important lesson through my entire life was
2: endurance
1: and tenacity and pull up your bootstraps and you got this. And the, and he would Amazing. say though, that, you know, there's a lot of top tennis players. The difference yeah. is the mental game and we know that in golf and all these other things.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: Um, wow. That's such
2: a fascinating era. Cause that was the era of like Arthur Ashe and
1: uh, Oh yeah, exactly. Um, Billie
2: Jean King and um, mm-hmm. beginnings of Martina Navratilova and yeah uh, oh yeah all uh, of It because that. of John Chris McEnroe Everett, as well Chris
1: Everett all of it yeah, yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah
1: um so uh yeah it was very interesting and well wow, so um funny.
2: tenacity was really a virtue that um your father instilled in you and uh gosh I that makes complete sense to me like I, I see you holding true to that and, and so many things that you shared with me about your experiences so that makes a lot of sense um when did your father pass
1: he's still alive in fact it's so Whoa, funny I don't, okay <laughs> it's fantastic. he's, he's uh, gonna be 84 in a few weeks and it's That's so crazy. funny he just called me and it messed up all my recording and all of a sudden you weren't there and <laughs> so dad felt me and uh
2: wow. just called him
1: Yeah, so that's and where is he based? He's in Seal Beach. He lives at Leisure World. Oh, yeah, he's not so far. Yeah, he he and my mom are still both together, and they just celebrated their sixty-eighth wedding anniversary.
2: Oh my God. That is yeah. phenomenal. I think I think they don't even have gift levels when you get, go go yeah, past fifty. I, I and they're like 18 years beyond that. So like, know, what do you, you do?
1: Infinity. <laughs> that's what you you
2: that's, infinity. that's really extraordinary. Um yeah. Wow. Okay um well and, and sorry for my presumption there
1: um oh no it's okay
2: when, when, when did your dad pass but uh it's great that he's he's still with you and, and both of your parents are mm-hmm. and uh and they're they're nearby yeah, um but i, I want to get back I to you
3: yeah
2: ah okay well that that makes a lot of sense yeah, yeah absolutely um so not only tenacity but a high level of conscientiousness is your personality but I want to get back to you and so let's talk about Mammoth Um, you stayed for 10 years which um, you know tell us about what was going on in the time what kept you there and then Uh, what ultimately made you decide to leave
1: well I um, I worked you know this was ski school in the 80s you know those movies like hot tub time machine and hot dog and all that and Warren Miller films I mean I was living that experience you know of you know I remember when I tried out for ski school and it was 250 people and Mm. five supervisors and you had to ski down one at a time and I think they chose 10 you know um and you know, and it was big earrings and you know, uh <laughs> yeah, stretch know. pants and um right, right. and uh it was it was a community. I mean, the and even now I'm so connected and when I go back to Mammoth, it's like I never left. Um wow. and I have really deep, deep and long lasting forever friendships. With the people that um, and even though we've dispersed around the world in many cases we're all still really connected and um, so I eventually became a supervisor and Mm. um, and was lucky enough to work with a woman who is one of my idols Kathy Copeland and together we really grew um, the children's ski school with with other people but You know, it used to be kids weren't such a big deal in skiing. It was all about adult ski school. And then it shifted. And all of a sudden, we went from 10 children's instructors till we needed 100. And (laughs) the volume, oh, we could, I mean, and that the kids' ski schools were, you know, was generating greater than a million dollars in revenue a year. And we didn't have the systems to support it. And if you can imagine trying to... We had to hire the instructors, train the instructors. How do you teach kids? And we're all just trying to yeah. figure it out, and keep yeah, everybody so healthy. Good. Because an LA ski area—I don't know if you've ever been up to Mammoth—but here, it, it, there were times where you'd have twenty thousand skiers on the hill for a weekend, and they oh would all goodness. drive up Friday night. So you can imagine. As a parent, you know, you get your kids, you throw them in the car, you've worked all week, you drive six hours to get there. You get into your condo, you unpack, you get everyone to sleep, then you line up to try to get them up the hill. And everyone arrives within the same half hour. (laughs) And they all want their kids in lessons by 10. And they still need rentals and they need to be fed. And as soon as you get them dressed in the layers of clothing, someone has to go pee. And so the stress level of the parents was always really high. And again, it's one of those things that now as a parent, I go, oh my gosh, you know, and um, you know, Kathy, another woman, Julie, who I'm still very close with, you learn so much about customer service and how to really be present with people and listen. And um, listening is such an important thing oftentimes it's not about what you're trying to provide it's about where they are
2: yes and 100%. Um,
1: and it was just going back to the fun like I would tell instructors yes we want to teach them to ski but most
2: importantly
1: make them want to come back tomorrow
2: exactly yeah
1: do something so that these kids skiing is a lifelong sport that will get them out in nature and you have the opportunity to um, I and I take this opportunity really seriously. I would tell them, you know, there's always a coach or somebody that you never forget, an adult hmm. who touched your life as a child.
2: Yeah, who, so true.
1: Who can change the course of it? Either turn you on or turn you off. Right. You don't forget the teacher that told you you weren't an artist. When I work with people, they go, Oh yeah, I remember it was so and so this one that told yeah. me I should never draw that I wasn't an artist yeah. they never yeah. forget it
2: yeah, And um, That leaves a but scar. do that
1: for the positive yeah do it for the positive side yeah. you know like like let them so that's always been my challenge to myself to um, to meet people and, and make a positive impact on their life in yeah. the short even if it's only for a minute you know Amazing. what can I leave them with
2: Well, now I know why you stayed for a decade. That's really intoxicating. And that's really so you. Um, And that's an important thread uh, in terms of, uh, you know, it just ties so elegantly with what you're you're doing today. So uh, I'm glad I asked Mm -hmm. that question because that uh, was a phenomenal response. Um, Mm -hmm. Ten years passes. You're in your late 20s. And then... Mm -hmm decide to leave Mammoth. What happened then?
1: It was, it was time to go to school. You know, I, (laughs) again, I started to look and I realized that, you know, um, I didn't want to be 40 and that just wasn't my path. There's nothing wrong with it. It just wasn't mine. And that, and I guess, again, I, I see that this is uh, something that, is consistent through my life. I can feel when a space gets too small. It's mm. almost, um, I kind of have a theory on it that we can go into another time of scene, but, you know, <laughs> okay. like...
2: Caustrophobia sinks in well, and you're like, much more ah, I like birth, good.
1: Much more like birthing, you know? Oh, as, a, wow. as a child grows in a mother's womb,
2: ah. yeah,
3: when there's yeah. no
1: more space, it comes out into the next big space. Right. and. So I see everything like our own personal development um, physically and really intellectually and spiritually as you get older as like a series of concentric circles. And we're always, as we learn, we reach an edge that asks you to either push against it. And that's always a comfort zone because the womb is a really comfortable place for a baby. That's why they cry when they get out. They're like. What in the world? What
2: yeah, exactly.
1: What what's happened? I was you've super disrupted. I was like Yeah, you disrupted my peace. I was super yeah. cozy. Yeah, yeah. And, and so that's our own personal development is that we get really comfortable in what we know mm-hmm. and how we are, and we're like and then something happens and you're asked to expand. Or, you know, we talk about searching for purpose, but we reach the edge and so often we turn away from it. But what you wanna do, it's its an illusion of a boundary. It's like push through. And yeah. in that, your world gets bigger. And for a brief amount of time, you're kind of gesticulating wildly in your discomfort. Some, some people will turn around and go back, yeah. but others will keep going. And that yeah. is, um, is what we do is we're always reaching these edges and they're actually infinite. And yeah. I, um, it's really led me to a philosophy of following my friction instead of avoiding it. When I feel an edge, whether it be about an idea or a desire to hold on or cling to something, I've learned to ask myself, why do I feel that way? Why do I want to own this? And I go through a, a contemplative process that leads me to a deeper truth and uh at that point i can look at it and make a decision um wow. about
3: that i
2: love thing. that term I, I just i love that term um sort of uh, following the friction that's just mm-hmm. that's phenomenal and i would it's walk
1: a... the streets of san francisco Very handing cunning. out flowers randomly wow. to strangers in a tutu um as A love sculpture, and it said love across me. I dressed as a humanoid, and I would just give people a flower and a smile and honor their experience in my head.
0: Were people
2: responsive?
1: Yeah, you know, it was really scary. (laughs) like following my friction. It was really scary at first, Um, and I called that project One Face of Love, and I didn't even know. I thought I was just raising. Sorry, we're diverging. Um, No, no, no but i thought i was just raising awareness for my art raising money and i was trying to think how do i slow people down we're moving so fast that no one you know we're not paying enough attention and okay. we need a little bit of friction right. and but how much to provide i need to slow people down just enough
2: that's and not the too much formula, right that's what we got to figure out how much friction yeah. is enough
1: so I took the, um, I took BART. I parked at the North BART, uh, oh, yeah. North Berkeley BART station the first time I did it. And I was literally in a tutu. It said love across my chest, a white tutu with white tights, knee high boots that were six inch platforms with fur that were white,
2: oh, my goodness!
1: that flower crown and a basket of roses. And, um, People on the, I was really nervous. And, you know, and I had like information on my art. I thought I'll offer them a flower and have a conversation, invite them to a conversation. And, um, and people, what, they, what are you doing? Well, I'm an artist and here's a flower. And we would talk and one guy on the, on the train going to Embarcadero I had this group of people around me and this man, he was probably in his mid forties. He goes, do you know what you've done? In five minutes, you have an entire BART train talking about love.
2: Wow, oh my God. And
1: and then I walked up Market Street and I had no idea what I was doing. I just kind of do it. I get these ideas and I just do it. And I'm like, well, what's the worst thing that can happen? Can I handle that? Yes, (laughs) and I go. Um, and wow. so I ended up in the Tenderloin and- um, That's
2: a long walk from market.
1: It was. You I got off at Embarcadero.
2: The wow.
1: And, um, and the people that would catch, like I took, there's one group of guys, you know, smoking in a little alcove and I offered them a flower and they're like, well, you know, what did they want? They wanted drugs. And I said, well, I don't have that, but I have a flower. And they were like, okay. And I, they all took roses. And then I took wow. a selfie. And I have like these great pictures of people. And they're smiling with their cigarettes holding with their roses wow. in their hands. And I got to one guy, you know, and it's the pigeons flying in the coldness and the, and the brown paper bags and the tenderloin. And this guy's sitting there and I offer him a flower. And it was my friend waiting for me at the restaurant was like, Where are you? I go, This is when you dress as love, you can't say no to anybody. You know, you can't, <laughs> you, you, can, you got to, well, well, you're a
2: bit obligated. Yeah, it's true.
1: But I handed him the flower and I said, He took it and he, I go, Can I take your picture? And he said, Well, why? And this was the first time anyone asked me why I wanted to take their picture because I didn't even know yet. I, I didn't conceive of this one face of love project yet. I was just trying to raise awareness for another piece of art I was doing. And I said, well, because I want to share all the faces of love. Mm. And he looked at me and the picture I took is the most beautiful picture. Wow. He, it's so beautiful. And that I have. He was glowing.
2: Fun. You made him glow
1: hundreds of these pictures. And you know, when someone takes your picture, you look at it. And oftentimes you say, you start tearing yourself apart. Oh, I look yeah. horrible or, oh, look at this. And, and but, and I've done it again, it became a thing. And I did it more than once in San Francisco. I've done it in Seattle, in um, Capitol Hill and down at Pike's market in LA multiple times in Reno. And consistently people look and they go, oh my God. And one woman said, I look so beautiful. I know Mm. what it is. You make it so I'm not afraid. Like we're afraid of ourselves. We're afraid of our own art and our own beauty. So that in front of a camera, oftentimes you tense. Um, But they're so, and they all have all different walks of life, one flower. And um, anyway, so that's something that I'm building out. But I used to, yeah, I wear wore this. <laughs> and I was like six foot tall, love statue.
2: Right, yeah. I mean, that, that's an attention grabber. There's no question. I, I, I'd yeah. certainly accept a, a rose from a woman yeah. wearing a hat like that. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah, my well, roommate made I- it.
2: And that sounds like it was pretty recent. This was, because you mentioned selfie. So that happened yeah. when?
1: Uh, that started, let's see, I built the art installation um, in 2019. So that was, Oh. you know, that was 2019. Last year?
2: Yeah, amazing. Yeah. Wow.
1: yeah.
3: Okay.
2: Well, I'll let you take your sip of water. And then what I want to go back to is... Um, mm-hmm you decided to go for your education. So tell us about uh, where you went. And I I know you must have thought about this quite a bit or what you decided to study was not a fluke. It was deliberate. So let's talk about that.
1: Um, So I left Mammoth sight unseen for Boulder, Colorado because by this time, I, again, I just gotten deeper into my own physical body and loved to push myself really hard. I was racing Ironman triathlons and that was the Mecca, but they also had the University of Colorado in Boulder. So I could do both. I could live up against the mountains, go to school and exercise my brains out. And um, so I went there, I established residency and uh, I studied kinesiology and applied physiology. So um, where most people, I, most people were, well, I started off actually in molecular and cellular developmental biology.
3: Okay. And,
1: but that was too many microscopes and I liked bigger <laughs> systems and I didn't want anatomy. I wanted to know how a dynamic system moved. I had right. to take anatomy learn all the parts but nothing is ever static in life the very definition of life is that it's moving it's breathing it's doing something
2: and it's dynamic um, that's right mm -hmm.
1: so i did my undergrad and master's there at cu boulder and i worked in an integrative vascular biology lab so i did infusion studies in human subjects in the brachial artery and we measured nitric oxide uh, dependent vasodilation. So uh, we actually drew arterial and venous blood in a closed forearm system. And, um, you know, I was in the bowels of the library, you know, like looking at research, following trails and breadcrumbs. (laughs) that were Very so fantastic. interesting, you know, contributing to what are we applying for, for our next right. NIH grant, and then alternatively participating in um, the review process for different journals. Um,
2: yeah, yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's actually, um, it it feels intuitive that these were the areas that you would study. Um, clearly you loved it otherwise there wouldn't have been a master's after the bachelor's yeah and so this really consumed you you were really engaged with it
1: well I mean we're we are miracles you know Mm -hmm. Um, we the fact that we are here and that we wake up every morning is a miracle and you know the I remember I just looked at one cell, the endothelial cell, and we were studying, you know, it was at the time, it was kind of cutting edge. It was new that this cell that they thought was just a buffer liner was actually ground zero for hypertension and heart disease. And, um, and it's a really complex cell that determines so many things in terms of how our inflammation, um, is signalled and um, it's and the more I the more I focused my attention, I realized the less I knew. So it was a very humbling experience, you know. That and uh, um, I had three kids while in school, so uh, I ended up. Well, I was just gonna ask. Yeah, my, you got
2: married at the time. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I was like, you know, I would feed my babies in the back of the big. 500 people lecture halls. And I had my daughter first. And then my, my middle son, he was born my first semester of grad school. And I interviewed my professors and said, I'm going to have a baby in February. And um, so I had him on a Saturday and I was back in class on a Sunday. I mean, on Monday, and he would just lay on the table and sleep. And I mean, like, people were so wonderful and if I fell asleep I would go down to his office later and sit and it was graduate statistics so it was learning how to hand calculate chi square and and probabilities and all kinds of stuff and the theory of statistics which a lot of people don't think is very exciting but (laughs) um but necessary for the
2: sciences yeah
1: yeah and um and then I was My youngest son was born three weeks after I graduated uh, with my master's. So I would have done a PhD, but I thought it was going to be a little too hard. It was time to stop.
2: Wow. Okay. Yeah. So uh, a parental instinct kept you from your doctorate.
1: But yeah, yeah, it was perfect. I mean, they, the lab that I worked in, the kids could get Hmm. sick and the, the postdocs had candy in their drawers and, um, yeah, it was, again, it was, I had this great community that, um, you know, uh, at family housing and
2: oh, yeah, it was, so
1: it was, I was really lucky.
2: Well, the beauty of that story for me is that, uh, you're, you just, your pursuit of knowledge and how to make, uh, humanity better or, or garner more insight. Um, it's like the universe conspired to help you with that. And including Very bringing so. these amazing children into the world, so that's uh, yeah. such an exquisite story. Wow, fantastic!
1: Do you, um, when you say the universe conspired, I always think of the Alchemist. Um, <laughs> that that was, you know, one of the books that sent me on my journey. Is you wow. know when you when you align with your legend, the universe will conspire in your favor. Of yeah. course, we know from Joseph Campbell and The Hero's Journey, that doesn't always feel like it's in your favor, but they're,
2: you know, like, <laughs> well,
1: necessary lessons.
2: The universe wants to test us, of course. So, right. yeah, we have to get we through that to hero's learn. journey. Yeah. Yes, exactly. The trials, man. That's right. You know, we have to have that whiff of death. Otherwise, mm-hmm. the story isn't valid. We haven't been tested fully. So, um, yeah, I'm sure there are some vignettes from that. Uh, although... Um, to to his credit he was the first to put it in this uh brilliant short story encapsulated form um but i think the reason why it has such universal appeal is that we were all feeling something like that through most of our lives um just the sensation of being in doubt questioning wondering and then you make a choice and you feel scared out of your mind to make that choice but then you see signs you see like oh no actually this is the right path this is the the universe conspiring to
1: or you don't see the signs so that's you know like that's the um that's that edge you know yeah yeah. well is it that we don't see it
2: or is it that we ignore it
1: well I think probably a little (laughs) bit of both. We don't recognize it. Maybe that's it is we don't recognize it as the path, you know, like we're so used to the freeway. And, you know, when, when you talk about the road less traveled, you know, it's, it's not even a road when you first come upon it, you know, it's like this overgrown, I looked at like the story of Hansel and Gretel is such a great, um, great story, you know, about leaving home and you go off Mm. and you, wander through this forest and you find a candy house that looks so amazing and wonderful. You know, this is everything I was promised if I did this, 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 and this. So you go into the house full of candy and suddenly you find yourself in a cage and you're about to get eaten. And- um,
2: You know, I've never reevaluated that story from that lens. I'm so glad you did because yes. exactly
1: (laughs) Yes, and then you have to escape and find your way back home where you started
2: yeah yeah
1: and and so like when you asked about my childhood and how i was that's really what this has been is i started at home and that's the alchemist he's led back to his treasure was where he started we're born as free Mm -hmm. we're born as pure and then we we have this process of kind of forgetting yeah. Um, and then when you have that call to adventure moment, um, where you either refuse the call or you go, okay. And you make, well, you that have agreement. to refuse
2: in the beginning and then you eventually yeah. take it. <laughs> yeah.
1: And, um, and, but once you agree, you can't go back, you no. know, when it's, it's like, and it's really a challenging thing for other people to understand, like. I know this makes you uncomfortable that I'm sleeping in my car, but I can't go back. Like that yeah. feels like a stake in my heart. Like exactly. I know what I'm here to do.
2: Exactly. And I have um, my purpose. Right. I'm on my path. Yeah.
1: And then you have to um, allow time to really expand beyond linear.
2: Yeah. And well um,
1: yeah. And so just, well yeah. So, Amazing. yeah.
2: So, uh, your third child's born a few weeks mm. after you graduate with your master's yeah. degree, um, yeah. and you decide I'm not going to pursue any more education. What happens there? What do you end up doing?
1: Uh, we moved down to Durango, Colorado, and okay. I was a mom, you know, I had yeah. three little ones well, and, yeah. um, uh, it's but, uh, uh, a
2: bigger job than, uh, I'll say it. It's a bigger job yeah. than being a grad student and getting <laughs> being a bigger doctoral candidate. It, it was, just uh, is. <laughs> yeah.
1: And, um, we had dogs and we lived in the mountains and, um, mm-hmm. I ran trail marathons with my husband and we, you know, we hiked, we were always outside. We lived on a little tiny lake off a dirt road and, um, but then 9-11 happened. You know, you never mm. forget that day. Of course. And because my husband used to have to travel for work and suddenly that was impossible because you couldn't fly anymore. Yeah. And um,
2: Was he home at the time or was he on the road?
1: Um, that I don't actually remember. I think mm. he was on the road. Wow. Um, but well, meaning know- was he
2: away, like, did he have to find, because... Uh, you know, when that happened, no flights for a week, people had to do these outrageous adventures to get home. So he had to go through that.
1: Um, and I, I wasn't, yeah, the details of that That weren't,
2: yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, wasn't that it was just shock, you know, and, um, and, things shifted then because that's when we had to, we had to leave Mayberry, you know, and, uh, and go back. And um, to where. Go back to Boulder. Go back to, well, we ended up, he was in a business development manager. And um, so we ended up a short stay in California before landing in Reno where we were for um, 11 years. Yeah. And I ended up taking a job uh, with a pharmaceutical company and um you know so i did apply it was great because in northern nevada it's such big territories that i got to work um not only with the physicians but i could negotiate with insurance companies and hospitals on treatment protocols so i got to do things that in larger cities they had dedicated people to do and um again just everything was a relationship
2: yeah Um, i've spent a fair amount of time in reno we had a portfolio company in reno this would have been about 16 17 years ago so i remember staying at the reno hilton and then the pepper mill mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah yeah and there's a there's a sign the the biggest
3: s- little city. Biggest
2: small little city in the world. Yeah, yeah. I was trying to wait. Was it the smallest, biggest city or the biggest, smallest no. city? <laughs>
1: biggest, biggest city, little city in the world. And when I left it on my adventure, I felt that once again. The tightness mm. of the little city. I didn't want the biggest little city. I needed <laughs> I needed, some, but yeah. it's lovely. It's right up against the Sierras. My kids could go play in um
2: Yes. pine
1: trees. And and, um, that's where our house was. And, you know, they used to come in at the end of the day and say, Mama, can we please watch TV now? We have used our imaginations all day.
2: Wow. What a beautiful thing. Uh,
1: And that's all I wanted. You know, that was just, that's what I wanted them to have was fort building and, you know, making things out of sticks and duct tape. And um, yeah. My daughter, she told me at one point I had her swimming and doing all these other things. And she said, I'm not you. I went, Oh my gosh. I will never remember. I will never forget that day at 13. When she said, I'm not you mama. Wow. Wow. I said, Oh my gosh. Well, what is it that you want to do? She wanted to sew and be in theater and how as a parent, we, mm. You know, oftentimes we talk about unconditional love. Right. And yet we unconsciously put conditions.
2: Yes. No, it's We true. don't
1: know we're doing it. Exactly. We're just, we just want the best. And they, you know, as a child, that's something I realized with my own father. Because um, I just adored him. Was um, all the different ways that I wanted to just please him and um and that that was my driver
2: and it's not uncommon. so yeah we all succumb and to I, that. and then
1: when i did that to my own kids was like you know like yeah yeah
2: absorbing that they are not following that same pattern or way of thinking is uh
1: and, yeah. you know, we see helicopter parenting and all that. And it's all fear. It's all fear-based yeah. love. Yeah. And um, I really realized that recently is that we're given these stories that to have love assumes that you also have fear. That right. And in fact, in the art that I do, people will write, you know, love is scary. The very right. thing that we want more than the world, we're also most afraid of.
3: Yeah, because that's of so true.
1: And you can't lose it. If you're in it, you cannot lose love. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. But we no, keep attaching
1: so it to like physical objects and, right. and um, it is tr- like, yeah. So that was a big part of my recent last 10 years was this journey of, of what is love? Um, yeah. What is it to be courageous in love? Um, love without need, can I love someone Or something and it doesn't need to love me back. It doesn't even need to like me. Could, um, I don't need you to change. I don't need you to talk to me. I'm still gonna, you know, I used to talk to people sometimes and I'd just be in my head repeating these mantras of, I don't, you know, like, how can I help you? What can I do for you?
2: You know, when so, you were in Reno, uh, you mentioned within the last 10 years, so uh-huh. you were there past 2010?
1: Um, yes, mm-hmm.
2: okay. Well, so then tell us about um, uh, what happened in Reno and then your eventual decision to come to, to LA.
1: Um, well, that's how many hours do we have? <laughs> this is where it gets. It's always interesting, um, but, you know, and I, th- I think it's really normal that you start to think, is this what I'm here for, you know, yes, have course. I led a fulfilling life? Like, yeah. what is my purpose? This is why we have a gigantic self-help industry. And um, again, I'm curious about things and I can look how I started, I was reading, you know, Fast Company and Inc. and looking at entrepreneurship Mm. and yet I worked for a huge corporation um, listening to podcasts and reading books and um, you know I was a huge fan of Paul Graham of Y Combinator I don't know if you're familiar with him of course
2: I definitely know Y Combinator yeah Uh,
1: oh my gosh his library of essays were Mm. fascinating to me And it's Mm. all about how systems work, you know, and people and what do we want? And, um, and so I could feel this friction building and, um, you know, I'd been with my husband for a long time and we'd lived a life and, uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't healthy. Mm. It, It wasn't the relationship that I think we're meant to have. And yeah. I wish that for him as well, you know. Yeah. Um, that people say relationships are, you know, marriage is hard. Well, it is if you agree to that. I think that again, it's not that growth occurs frictionless or without sure. resistance, but there has you can grow together and hold each other through the dynamic process. Or not you know yeah. and um and that's that is also part of life and death and um and that was when i was driving a lot i had a big territory and i i had bought um the alchemist mm. years before I, it's not the kind of book I read. I read like espionage novels. I was a big Vince <laughs> Finn, Flynn fan. I mean, okay. I was a yeah. conservative. I listened to Rush Limbaugh every single day on the radio. Wow. Wow. I had signed copies of Sean Hannity books. Um, wow. I, Ann Coulter, all of these, these Fox News on my TV every day on loop. And, um, and again, it's not right or wrong. It's the story that I got. Like, this is what, how I was raised. And yeah. that was, you know, it was
2: power of narrative.
1: Right. Power and, of story. And as a child, you don't necessarily get a choice, you know, yeah. um, and, or don't think that you have a choice. And in my case, and it's so interesting again, with all these siblings that the subjective experience of all of us within the same family, um, mine was very different from my sisters and they don't remember things that I remember. And I've always been that way. And, um, I'm grateful for it. You know, mm. it's, it's good. Um, it's good to be, you know, like again, Steve jobs, here's to the crazy ones, you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, like, well said. And, um, but, uh, but so anyway, uh, I, I went to the library and they had it on CD I'd never had. So it was Jeremy Irons that read me the story and it was all about oh. following your legend. And yes. I couldn't get out of the car. I couldn't, it was just this simple fable told in such a way that everything that you thought was bad was actually good and necessary. And the journey across, I've read it so many times now, gifted it to people. I used it as journals, like understanding that journey with the alchemist through the desert, learning the language of the land, hmm. learning how the earth speaks was so necessary. And then at the end, there's a pivotal moment where the boy to live has to become the wind. Yes. Um, and to become the wind, though, he had to also get the sun involved and the sand involved. And then he was directed back to the soul of the world, which is just your heart and to love. And um, and that was, you know, it was, um, and even then, when you have that that understanding, he still got his butt kicked at the pyramids once. You know, <laughs> you still get it a few <laughs> more times. You know? But, um, but uh, so, wow. I I just loved that book, and
2: that's really phenomenal, Sharon. I've talked to so many people who've been influenced by that book, and I've read it and been influenced as well. But nothing as poetic as what you've just shared.
1: Oh, thank you. I um. You know, that moment of becoming the wind, I've often um, have people ask me how I would describe myself. And there were many times going through transition where I would go up on top of a mountain. Again, I'm back in nature and feel the wind like, and it would be roaring and it would be cold. And I would just feel it blowing through me. And um, I describe myself as the wind and You know, the wind has no beginning and no end. Where does wind start? Mm. So fascinating. Where does it start? Yeah, it's
2: so well said, yeah.
1: And it blows through time and it carries our breath, the voice of our ancestors, the, you know, dinosaurs Mm. exhaled into this wind that I'm now inhaling or air. And it's just moving and it's invisible. The only way you can see wind is if it interacts with something. It requires a tendril of hair, a leaf, a something. Yes.
2: So well and yet said. it's
1: so powerful. So yeah. is it you know like is it windy if it's not interacting with something? Does it <laughs> right. like there is no yeah. power unless yeah. there's a partnership, a relationship. Right. Um, everything, everything that we are depends on our relationships. Within ourselves and with each other in our natural world, and that's really um, so. The wind is an amazing; it knows when to lay low and when to blow really hard, and it can carve valleys. Look at Yosemite. Yes, yeah,
2: or canyons. Yeah, it can make that all happen. Yeah,
1: amazing, amazing.
2: It absolutely is. I mean, what a what a force of of nature, no question. I'd love for you to guide us to your more artistic activities and uh, I'm deliberately not saying when you became an artist because you've been an artist all your life and I think most artists are mm-hmm. artists all their lives they just don't heed the call until a certain point um, but you had a an amazing share of the of a moment when uh and 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 I think you had other artistic activities, but um, this one in particular where you gave people permission to represent themselves. Yeah. Uh, um, in a beautiful way. So
1: the call to adventure for me was my divorce. And um, and I had never imagined what that would be like. In fact, I had been imagining what it would be to be free. Mm. Um, for many years, but honestly, I thought that, you know, I was trying to wait till my kids were older and um, and I thought it would be something that it was not gonna be my fault. You know, it was so interesting to even say that out loud. I thought I for sure it. when we split that, it would not be my fault. Um, but uh, that's not how you know when do you start applying blame when do whose fault yeah. is it ever yeah. when does yeah. the blame start you know it's like these layering of experiences over time and then you something happens but um but for me I lost my story I felt mm. groundless everything that I had believed to be true was no was no longer true wow. i mean it would literally like nothing i would take i was back to running and i would just go run and sit on rocks and sob with the dogs and hours and hours i i totally understood what forrest gump was doing you know yeah. like you know just yeah. running wow. running, running. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and um and when asked he was just like i don't know you know yeah. I went back to what I knew was to really feel my body, and um, and I so I was in this cliche existential crisis, loss of identity, and a lot of the um, a lot of the story of our marriage was around words and words mm. that weren't kind. Oftentimes we can use words really powerful, powerfully. To control others through fear yeah, and, true. Um, and they're very sharp yeah. so I had picked up my 11 year old son one day from school and they're going through divorce also and um, and I said how was your day like it's totally normal he says oh it was just okay and I said well what do you mean by that and he's 11 at the time and he says well some people were calling me names. And I went, oh, um, okay, well, and I had my pat answer. Is that who you are? Are you the name that you're being called? And he said, no. And I said, okay, well then don't let it bother you because people can tell you the sky is green all day long Mm -hmm. but when you know it's blue, it doesn't matter. But it was only on that day that I really realized, cause I didn't know what color my sky was anymore. Was I who he said I was or who I thought I was, but I didn't know who I thought I was anymore. I didn't have a color. I didn't have an identity. And so I said to him, well, if you're not those things, who are you? Mm. And, you know, he's only 11, so, um, you know, that's philosophers through time have asked that wearing togas and sure. you know olive leaves <laughs> in their hair. And, um, and so he looked at me kind of crazy and this is where going back to teaching kids skiing, I knew how to talk to children mm-hmm. with stories. And um, I looked at him and he loved to do art. And I said, well, Gabriel, so if I took a blank canvas and I painted your outline on it, how would you fill it? And he still looked confused. And so mm. I said, Well, you um you like to draw, right? And he said, Yes. And I said, So what does that make you? And he said, artistic? And I went, <laughs> well, you can put that in there and it's beautiful. um you like to snuggle me, right? And he said, yeah. And I go, well, why? He says, because I love you. I said, so then what does that make you? And he said, loving. I said, yeah, mm. put that in there too. And this is just the drive home from school. But the, and now comes the researcher, you know, because so much research depends on the right question. We have a lot of really bad research out there because we keep asking the same questions and we're not necessarily really uh, we're not looking at the whole system you know we just kind of keep doing what we're doing and and even the most challenging questions don't necessarily get asked because they're (laughs) kind of scary right yes (laughs) right it's true um, so finding really to spend the time and we're moving so fast so slow down really think about what's happening and what's the question and I was like wow oh, this is a interesting question so I just happened to have canvases at my house just canvas mm. pad and I took a black marker and I drew an outline on it accompanied by a really big glass of wine and um <laughs> It, it was not for like Gabriel, but for, was, for you, yeah, for me. <laughs> um, it, it just looked like shoulders, like this part. It was just the outline of the shoulders and the head. And when it came to the heart, I had a red marker and I almost didn't draw one in there. Mm. And inside my head was like, You're going to put a heart. And it was like, I don't know. That seems so Hello Kitty. Like I prided myself on being non-emotional. I really, that was one of my things is, is, you know, where women oftentimes get tagged and devalued because of our emotions. I was, um, not only could I compete athletically with the men, but I could also be logical and uh, methodical and, um, and, so it felt very strange to think about drawing a kitschy red heart on this canvas (laughs) right but i did it and
2: looked
1: something like that yeah
2: um, we have a visual brilliant
1: yeah and uh heart and then i started to fill it in and the first words you know are very easy you know there's um there's athletic, there's intelligent, there's curious, driven, all of these things. But um, there was a moment when um, it came to the heart, all those words landed outside, yeah. Yeah. somewhere in the periphery. But over that heart that I had such a hard time drawing, that was where my voices in my head started talking again. And it said, "Right, scared. And another voice said, you're not scared, don't do it. And the other voice said, you're terrified, write it down. And the I other see. voice said, Here, here's the, other, the shadow side of the lessons of my youth, pull up your bootstraps. You're not allowed to be scared. Hmm. And the other voice said, softly, it speaks much softer I dare
2: you. Wow.
1: And I do, I mean, like this is. And that's a voice you
2: listened to. I did. That last one.
1: <laughs> and it came as a dare. That voice knew just how to talk to me. Oh, you're going to, you think I can't? Oh, you think I can't watch me? You know? okay. I mean, and so oh, and with a so shaky good. hand, I wrote this huge scared right over my heart. Yeah. Yeah. And that was like a floodgate. All of a sudden yeah. came pain and lonely and broken and confused. And and I realize now that we ask people, we ask our children, we ask humans to deny half of their feelings. You're only allowed these and not those. It's
3: true. And yet there's
1: such anger is such a powerful emotion. Jealousy is a powerful emotion. And in bringing them closer and actually having a dialogue with them, you know, now when I work, so fast forward, it was so powerful. It was like, it was like, um, I told you it was um, like exhaling for the first time in my life wow. without having known. Yeah. I was holding my breath. I didn't know I, I was that. holding my breath. It was like,
2: yeah, yeah. That was phenomenal. It. I just, I love the way you talked us through that. Uh, challenge of writing the word scared over your heart but uh, yeah. yeah and um, that was so I almost want to say apocryphal and uh, it was an epiphany and uh, from yeah. there came this mission that and you growth embarked like, on.
1: I drew flowers yeah and now over 6,000 people have created these same portrait.
2: So, you know, Um, talk to us about that. How did you get to 6,000 people doing this? And that that just always moves me so much. Like you've created so much human understanding for people, for themselves. This is an amazingly empowering And in that they did
1: it for me. It was all about, like, Mm. it was all about sharing stories. You know, stories are how we make sense of the world. And I remember I was, that picture Um, I laid it down next to my mirror, and um, it was I'd look at it every day, and it was like, oh, I've been so focused on this external, looking at myself in this mirror, Mm -hmm. that's where I should have been looking. It was on my insides, um, and I was driving, and I had that sudden epiphany. And a moment where I intrinsically understood empathy, and I went, "Oh my God! Everybody has this. Everybody is just a story. Everybody has this dialogue or a version of it running behind their skin. They are not their outsides; were our insides, but our internal battles yeah. are becoming our external wars." Oh, I see. You know, it is it is the not listening to all those voices. Right. You know, one of the things, when we are not heard, when we're shut down in a conversation, um, that doesn't make you feel good. You want to punch a wall. So if I'm not listening to half of my emotions, because they're bad, I want to punch a wall.
2: Or the person who's shutting you down.
1: Right. <laughs> exactly. exactly yeah or the person that doesn't have the same faith or the person uh, that has different yeah. colored skin right because right. we make these assumptions about their yeah, stories as different than mine as i call well, it otherizing awesome. yes. um and yet they're not so um these are things i was very confused this was very counter to being taught that everything that mattered in life be measured it was logical and it was um uh it was logical it could be measured and it was predictable right right <laughs> that's right. the third one predictable yeah. we want to predict everything and we if would we can't love predict to. It, we don't do yeah. it
2: yeah yeah and yet, no it's true the
1: most joy what we actually want yeah. is things that are unpredictable novelty Absolutely. wonder we want things that are immeasurable, priceless. Visa used that in an yeah. ad. you know, We want things that we yeah. can't measure. And all of those things are generally totally illogical. Why do we stand in line for an Apple product when the technology is just as good with Samsung? Yes. No yeah, one. Absolutely, ever... absolutely. It's our emotional, Like There is a parallel world between the physical and the emotional world, but we spend a lot of time focusing on what we can see and devaluing what we can't because it can't be measured. But yet it actually is that that's driving the other system.
2: Yeah, no, it's so So, true. um,
1: So anyway, I was confused. Go ahead.
2: No, no, no. You say you're confused about...
1: Oh, I was at this, what just happened? What is Ah, it?
2: yeah, yeah. Well, but you you followed the friction, I did. <laughs> right? You were I feeling did. confused, you followed the friction. And please, I would just love for you to share like the the, the international projects you've yeah. done and you've created some amazing videos and, and we'll, we'll get all the links up so that people mm-hmm. can access them. But um, just such touching videos that you've done in Africa. And it's just, it's so universal, this approach. So please uh, share with us about
0: that.
1: Yeah, so I've worked with um, people from as young as five years old up to in their 70s. I've worked with cancer patients. I've worked a lot in education um, from gifted and talented to inner city youth. Um, I've worked uh, with addicts. I've worked, like you said, in both Kenya and South Africa, um, Mm -hmm. worked with women with HIV. And um, uh, I've done some family portraits because when, uh, you know, they're so interesting because when a family member gets sick, that becomes everybody's story. So, um, and done (laughs) gallery shows of that. So in a school, for example, I'll have hundreds of kids um, do portrait and i use um i give them permission in a space to be themselves and i encourage them i'm like you know nope you don't need permission to be yourself from anybody you are that and that is what you're supposed to be and if you know and creating that alignment is how we bring our gifts into the world that's how we get the very things that we want um so but then i turn them into galleries i put all these portraits up and they're all anonymous so there's a safety factor. Um, in fact, if, they're, if someone puts a name down, I can't use the portrait. But mm. at first I used to take pictures with them holding the portrait in front of their face. So you see a human body holding their inner self, their inner dialogue. And then they would look at those pictures and it was so weird. It was like this new kind of selfie that it was your soul. Amazing. And because that's how the soul speaks. That emotional yeah. world that we can't see, that drives everything. The way it is seen and expressed is through the language of art. And we are all, all artists. Yeah. Well, um, that's true. I'm kind of like a more traditional artist, you might say, but even then I'm non-traditional, but, um, but it's, a, it's a language. It's not yeah. something you make or yeah. hang on a wall. It's how we've spoken through time. And when systems or civilizations collapse, it's all that's ever left is the cave drawing.
2: That is such a brilliant point. It's so true.
1: That's how we learn. And yet, we have created a system that devalued and starved artists. In fact, going back to these unconscious things we do to our children, if our children are making art, we go, oh, no, no. Artists starve.
2: Why don't you become a doctor
1: instead? No, it's true. There's the first separation of our heart. So, um, but yet, and so in these galleries, people look and they go, and it's that same moment that I had, oh my God, that's me, that's me, mm. that's mm. me. I see people differently now. It's the stories yeah. behind our skin. Right. And the, we see each other as another. And in the US, and when you, you now, you know start making some comparisons with mental health statistics, and now you can visit visually see them and yeah. you hear these stories of oh those orphans in south africa they're so happy they are they have community we don't even know our neighbors
2: they have a sense We're, of connection yeah
1: they That's have so because important. they have to to survive they have to um collaborate with their resources to yes, survive absolutely. and um and we mm. are busy thinking if you have it i don't that this is a zero-sum
3: game
2: well, Sharon I've seen that in other areas um, in, um, in Mumbai in, in India there are a number of slums that have been built and there's been books written about it and there's you know journalists will go in and well they'll interview some of the slum dwellers they actually have enough money to buy an apartment or be in a high-rise apartment but they're like what life is that? i have a sense of community here everybody knows me here where am i gonna go why would i leave
1: it's the same thing like (laughs) i i brought food to people you know at the river what what happened is i kind of became everyone i once judged and i didn't know i was judging them i was like Mm. it's just my opinion i actually became that i went from you know this Athletes standing on top of podiums and excelling in business and life, living in a house on the hill with the BMW behind a gate, to at one point, I didn't even have a car because it was like, well, how important? Because I didn't even know what I was doing. And this was very different. There was nobody that was supporting what I was doing. And Mm -hmm. I'm trying to raise my children, going through this divorce still. It was a mess. But I had this calling,
2: exactly. and um, that's what you followed.
1: And they taught me, and we heal each other. That's what I know yeah. is that in yeah. in that um, there's there's these three systems. We have a human system, we have um, a nature system, and we have a information system. In the human system, we're totally disconnected we mm. full of social unrest. It's arguably broken. We yeah. f- look at statistics, show that, yeah. um, both in our physical and our mental health. The nature system, climate change, what we're doing to our oceans, we're extracting. We are just taking and consuming. So here we are consuming each other and the world upon which we live. And, And then there's the information system that is our ability to understand is very linear and yet it's accelerating exponentially so it's uncoupled and we see that with all the stuff around what is truth anymore Mm. what's fake news what's not like we are being fed um our unconscious bias is just so we're actually where we thought we would be coming together becoming more polarized
2: splintering yeah no it's true
1: each one of those systems are the three-legged stool that determine whether or not a civilization will thrive or collapse and so they're disconnected within themselves and between each other and art is that universal language that brings them back together that's the hub
2: thankfully you uh heeded that call and we just need to uh replicate you sharon because we need millions more who sense that also and can and and perform this really healing role that you're you're performing um it's it's really just heartwarming and and extraordinary um in the few minutes we've got left i'd love to hear your vision where would you like to take this project what are your goals what would you like to see happen with it
1: Well, I think it's limitless. So where it Mm -hmm. stands now is, I call it the human interface and it's I-N-N, two Ns, E-R-F-A-C-E. And it's this intersection between the internal and the external world that we didn't know and we didn't set our permissions or our security. And we uploaded this malware into our firmware. It's driving our system, but that art is the upgrade path for the soul. We haven't run, and we are dragging around our history. Our caches are full. Our emotional connections are sluggish. We don't tolerate that in the digital world. It ruins our day. So bringing that,
2: mm,
1: I believe- it's a brilliant metaphor. Yeah, I mean, we don't tolerate it. And yet we tolerate it every day in our human relationships. So true system change begins with the individual. Um, I started with these portraits, This dialogue as who am I as myself? That expanded in 2019. And this glowing pillar is part of an installation I built at Burning Man that was 250 feet around. And um, it held 26 of these life-sized humanoid sculptures. So it was, again, concentric circles, a glowing circle of light, the illusion of a boundary, It expressed time, the soul of the world, all these things that I hold true in a bucket of markers and a conversation. What does it mean to be free? Mm -hmm. So here I am as myself, this truth portrait. Why do I believe these things? How do they affect how I am in the world? Then collectively, this is a whole dialogue. Everyone has a voice, permission and a space to speak. I've done it for social um, uh, justice, installations I have one that was race inclusion and uh, heal I just took um, humanoids across the country I've created them in 3D Uh, I took you know like I travel around with them now instead of the flowers I'm carrying these guys and I just take them places (laughs) and give people a marker and I'm just I'm not the one Holding the conversation Beautiful. because if we don't want to listen, we devalue the person speaking. But these That's are true. the guys speaking, so working mm. further across all of these um, all of these spaces, activating individuals to create deeper relationships with themselves, each other, shift power, and now we have all the frameworks already in place. We know how to then drive change in a way that everyone can thrive. Now, the more I know myself the more I become connected with the natural world and know that I'm not separate for that other. So now suddenly I don't wanna extract and consume. I want to help you even more. Mm. I want to be aware of every plastic bottle and the trees and the um, every living thing is a part of me. And, and of course we can amplify that through technology that technology we've got to bring that closer instead of pushing it away we have to bring it closer and design algorithms that um use love and connection instead of exactly. fear and extraction and exactly. and that that's part of the storytelling and giving people markers like this is what the student pick up the marker it's your story yeah, you, get so it.
2: well you get to write it
1: you get to write it and um so I'm an invitation. I'm the wind and I'm an invitation. So oh, um
2: I love that. Sharon, yeah. that's such a great way to uh describe yourself. Wind and the invitation. And an invitation. That's lovely. and it's
1: fun. Like play. Play is we arrived at a playground. We yeah. didn't ask what you did or where you lived. We just made things. Yeah. We just that's made beautiful. things and that's fun. Like we can have that.
2: Yeah, like I no, have, for sure.
1: It is, we are so lucky to be alive and we have a responsibility to our ability, whatever that happens to be, to be compassionate towards ourselves, but give your gift, yeah. you know, um, the world's waiting.
3: Yeah.
1: It's, it's waiting for you to go, <laughs> you know, whatever it happens yeah. to be.
2: Yeah, Um, no, it's so true. And we can learn so much from each other. Sharon, I would say the world's been waiting for you. And we're so grateful and thankful that you are here doing what you do. And um, this is such an amazing project. You're going to touch the the lives of so many. And With um, your
1: health, esteem. And everyone, like, I'm just so grateful. We will trumpet
2: this. Absolutely. we, We will trumpet it.
1: I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for other people. You know,
2: well, we need that's each That's why we're all, yeah, we're connected in that way. We're here on that mutual mission and that, that sense of community. It doesn't matter. Material things don't matter. It's that sense of community that we can build. That's I think what, we're feeling uh, that very much lesson.
1: so right now,
0: yeah, is
1: coming absolutely. back to community. Um, yeah. In our isolation, we can yeah. still create a way to be emotionally close. No, and, it's 100% um, true. So I invite any of your listeners to reach out to me. If you go to the humaninterface.com, send me an email. I will respond.
2: Perfect. Humaninterface.com with a double N. So i n n e r f a c e.com. Um, Sharon, it's been so exquisite. I feel uh, almost immoral uh, signing off with you because we could go on for several hours uh, I know <laughs> uh, but I used to be
1: afraid that I talked too much it was one I of mean, my greatest fears I,
2: I doubt there's anybody who has uh, ended it abruptly or before we've reached the end because you're so captivating and we are all really just so thankful and engaged in what you're doing and um, yeah thank you for inviting us to be a part of that mission uh, I feel so healing to, to do that. So thank you. I would just like to express that gratitude that uh, thank, you. Um, thank you for doing what you do and for, for healing us.
1: Thank you for showing up and playing.
2: <laughs> Very well said. Yes. <laughs>